We study billionaires, and this is episode 125 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Seoul, South Korea. And today we have a book for you. And this book was by the billionaire Reed Hoffman out of Silicon Valley. So for anybody who's not familiar with Reed Hoffman, he is the LinkedIn guy. That's probably the best way I can describe him for everybody to know exactly who I'm talking about. He's the founder of LinkedIn. And if you don't know much about Reed, he really comes with a pretty impressive background because it's not like he just did LinkedIn. He did a bunch of other things that have all been insanely successful. So let me give you a quick background on him. So his current net worth is $3 billion. He was an undergrad student at Stanford, and then he went on to study at Oxford. Really interesting. He, at a very young age, is quoted as saying that he wanted to have a huge impact on the world. And so he initially wanted to go into academia and write books. And then he kind of had this transition and this morphing early on where he didn't feel like he could have as big of an impact by being in academia. So instead, he wanted to go out and he wanted to work for a big name company in Silicon Valley. So he started off working at Apple Computers in 1994. Now, what I find really interesting about his background is he started at Apple and within three years, they put him in this division called eWorld, which was eventually sold to AOL within two years after he started working there. And only three years after he started working for Apple, he went on on his own and started a company called socialnet.com in 1997. And if you're wondering what socialnet.com was in 1997, it was Facebook. That's basically what it was. Now, this didn't obviously become Facebook, but what socialnet.com was, and this was like literally seven or eight years before Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook or MySpace or any of that stuff. Reed Hoffman was way ahead of the game on this stuff. And so socialnet.com, what it did is it was like online dating and it was uh, matching people up with similar interests. So like if you played golf, it would link people up who were also in the neighborhood that wanted to play golf. So it just shows you how brilliant this guy was early on. He saw all of this stuff happen and way before it even happened. So he goes off. So socialnet.com, he holds on to that. And at the same time, he became a member of the board of directors for a little company called PayPal. His work at PayPal was very profound. He was the chief operations officer at PayPal. And what was amazing for him was he was going through this and this, this growth within PayPal. Reed Hoffman went on to work all the big deals with Visa, MasterCard, Wells Fargo. He did all the business development with eBay, Intuit, which is a really big software for accounting. And then he also handled all the government regulation and judicial type stuff, the legal stuff. And this is where he was working for Peter Thiel, which we read Peter Thiel's book Zero to One a long time ago, probably two years ago. But he was in the heart of this growth with PayPal. And he was the guy really making things happen. He was the action officer. He was the guy putting out all the fires and making things happen. So this all happened in January 2000 is whenever he basically left this social net thing and he went full-time onto PayPal. And so only two years later, he was at PayPal for another very short burst of time. And his age, I, Stig, he's what, 48 or something like that? He's not that old for all the things that he's accomplished. It's pretty mind-blowing, all the things he's accomplished for all the older he is. But anyway, so after he was done at PayPal, which was 2002, he then started LinkedIn. So it was just like, Number one hit after number one hit in Silicon Valley from the time he basically stopped working at Apple and he just started making moves, like serious moves. And as you plow through his bio even more, you can see that he was an initial investor, first round investor in Facebook. I mean, you'd think, you know, Stig, if he's investing in Facebook, considering he already wrote the code for it like seven years ago, I guess he would have, he would have seen that one as being a winner. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
He's really impressive. And Preston, I'm really happy that you talked about the PayPal mafia. I think we covered it a few times, but it's really impressive. Like these guys, Elon Musk being one of them, Peter Thiel, another, and uh, also the two guys from YouTube, Yelp as well. I don't know how they're actually doing it. Well, he actually touched briefly upon that in the book in terms of making alliances and all that, but it's quite astonishing that you'll see all the key people from the PayPal days that they've all been so successful since. I think it's quite remarkable. Yeah. I mean, this guy's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. You can see that from just where he went for his undergrad and his master's. I mean, he was just a super smart guy. So some of the other companies, just real fast before we dive into the book here, So not just Facebook, not just PayPal, he's the founder of LinkedIn, and he also had investments in Airbnb, he had investments in coupons.com, he had an investment in care.com, which is the babysitter website. And I mean, this this is the tip of the iceberg. I could keep reading all these companies that he was an investor in early on, like round one investor. It's totally crazy. So anyway, let's dive into the book. So that's who we're talking about. These are his thoughts that he wrote this book. And there's a co-author on this. His name is Ben Casnocha. And the two of them wrote this book together. So we'll just go chapter by chapter because there's really not a lot of chapters. And this was a pretty easy read. Wouldn't you agree, Stig? What were your overall thoughts before we go chapter by chapter? Well, I definitely think that this is the book I should have read 10 years ago. I think it has a lot of great insights about building relationships. And especially, I would say if you're a college student, that's definitely a book you should pick up. Clearly, when you're setting up your own business, you learn to build relationships with business associates one way or the other. But I think that starting out with a book like this, it will save you a lot of hardship in terms of approaching people the right way. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And as you said, Preston, it's a really easy read. A lot of anecdotes, a lot of great stories, very conversational. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can, I know I listened to the audible version of this and I really liked it. And just a note, if you're listening to this and you want a free book for the first one you download, go to our website. We have links in the website that you can download your first audio book on audibles for free. And this could be the book if you want to listen to this one. So the first chapter is titled All Humans Are Entrepreneurs. He starts off this chapter with a really kind of simple premise where, and I really like the way he lays this out because he says that, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the way that America worked in particular, you could go work for a company and work your way up the ladder and really kind of have enormous success for yourself and really kind of live in that house that you wanted and all that kind of stuff. Like basically the American dream, you could go work for one company and rise up through it. And, and that was, it, it worked. And he's saying today, it's not like that anymore. He said, you can have a great education. You can go work for a great company and really kind of struggle to really produce this American dream. And I think he really attributes it to is just the fact that the world is insanely competitive at this point. And I mean, you could get into this whole big, long argument as to what's causing that. Stig and I would probably argue that it has to do with long-term interest rate cycle, but we aren't going to go down that (laughs) path. (laughs) He's laughing because he agrees with me. We're not going to go down that path as to why that's happening, but he lays out that case and and Reed doesn't lay out why that's happening either. All he's saying is the world is becoming a lot more competitive. And if you're relying on that model, that 1960s to 80s kind of model as to how you're going to rise to the top, it's probably not going to work out nearly as well for you. I think his argument here is that you have to get better at creating a competitive advantage for yourself. So I want to throw it over to Stig and hear his thoughts on this. Whenever I heard the title of the first chapter, All Humans Entrepreneurs, I was thinking, I guess like most people, so does that mean that we all need to start up our own company? I mean, clearly it has been really, if not easy for Reed Hoffman, he's been very successful. So I was kind of like, hmm, that's that's a weird start. But actually, he's very accurate on what he means about being entrepreneur, because it's not about necessarily starting your own company. It's just as much about your approach to your own work life. It might be starting up your own company, but for most people, it's being an employee. And he's having this notion that today, 20 years of experience is 20 times one year of experience. Like that's the premise he's looking at everything from. And I really, really like that. He's saying, you're not 20 times as good. And as Preston said before, this is not about you working 20 years in the same company or even longer getting your gold watch and then retire like the world is definitely 
changing. And he's saying that the good thing about the entrepreneurial mindset is that they're really good at working with uncertainties and the need to constantly adapt. And that's something as an employee today, you also need to do. And he's talking about this term he calls permanent beta. And basically, what this means is that everything is always a work in process. You're never done with anything. You can't look at your job is just done. And he says that it's the same thing with your job. It's the same thing for your career. And you must simply accept being out there in the world that you are flawed and you're always going to approve. And that's the entrepreneurial mindset that he encouraged everyone to have. Yeah, I, I like that point because at the heart of it, he's talking about self-improvement. And he's saying that the entrepreneurial mindset is one that's always trying to self-improve. It's always basically saying, what I have right now is not good enough and that I need to get better at whatever it is that I'm doing. And he's basically saying that if you have that mindset and you are treating, whether you're working for a big name company, you're working for a small business, you own your own business, it doesn't matter. But if you take this entrepreneurial mindset of constantly trying to self-improve, that's going to be a huge building block for you as you try to achieve whatever it is that you're trying to go after. And he had this very nice way for stock investors to look at how the world is changing because he said that in 1920s, the company stayed in the S&P 500 for 65 years. That was something that even back then sounds like a long time. That was really surprising. But what he's saying now is that today it's 10 years. For me as a stock investor, how can I use that information? I was like, does that mean that one should be thinking more into ETF investing because it's simply too difficult to predict the performance of companies these days. All right. So going on to the second chapter, this one was called Develop a Competitive Advantage. So as you might think, what he's saying here is that there's so many opportunities. There's millions of people that are equally skilled for what it is that you're doing. So how in the world are you going to set yourself apart from the other person? And so the way he lays this out, he says, first off, you need to determine your assets, whether they're soft skills like your network, your knowledge that you have, or maybe it's hard assets like your cash or your investments. You need to determine what those assets are. And I think for most people, they're going to be a soft skill asset. It's going to be what you know, what you learned in college, your practical knowledge in the jobs that you've had. That's where most people have their assets. The next thing that you need to do after you understand what that is, you need to figure out how you can grow that asset base into the future. And then thirdly, it's essential to face the reality and identify what your customers are willing to pay for. And your customers, for a lot of people, that's your boss. That's who you're working for. That's your customer. You're providing a service to them. And if you can't figure out a way to expand that, your ability to basically rise up and maybe achieve whatever it is that you're wanting to achieve is not going to happen. So I guess it's a really simple way to look at things from a business entrepreneur mindset, but then you're applying it to your ordinary job if that's what it is, or maybe you're applying it to the business that you own. It's however you want to look at it, but it's really kind of viewed through the same lens. And I really like the way that he was putting it up in three simple steps. And after he did that, he used the example of a basketball player. So he said that for a basketball player, well, his assets, soft assets in this case, that was his capabilities of playing basketball. Now, so the second part, the aspiration of values, well, his value needs to be aligned before it's sustainable for him. And so in his situation and, and the niche that he needs to put himself in is where he has a competitive advantage. So that might not be the NBA, that might be a small league because he needs to be someone who is remarkable. And then the third one is the market realities. So who is actually willing to hire you? Which kind of league can you play in? Which kind of club can you play in? And he said that that was the way to look at those three steps. And we must all do that because we can't always be the best at what what necessarily wants to be best at, but still it needs to be aligned with what we believe in. So we need to find that niche first, that's really the key word, and go from there. And I think that was a really interesting way of looking at your own capabilities, especially if you just graduated and you're thinking, well, I'm probably not really the best at anything because I haven't really acquired any skills. But he debunks that and saying, you do have them, you just need to develop them and then find the niche where you can be the best. And he said that 
You can usually do that within 6 to 12 months. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. All right, so going into the third chapter, it is titled Plan to Adapt. And I like this chapter because it kind of goes against the grain on a lot of other books that we've read that really talk to this idea of coming up with this one goal and this one thing that you are dead set on achieving. And he doesn't say that you shouldn't do that, but I think what he's saying is you should be more adaptable and open to other courses as you're going towards whatever that goal is. So let me just give an example. So let's say you have this huge goal of becoming the number one chess player in the world, whatever it might be. And as you're going down this path and you're working towards it, you might be presented with opportunities that might actually be more appetizing to you in the long run. So like, let's say, for example, you're trying to be the best chess player in the world. But then for whatever reason, the conditions, the environment around you offers you this new opportunity that maybe you could start your own chess academy and teach other people how to be world-class chess players. And for some people, that might sound like an absolute terrible thing. You know, maybe somebody who's trying to achieve at a very high level, that sounds horrible because it'd take them off their course. But for another person, if they'd be presented with this opportunity, that might actually be something that they actually might want more. And I think that's what Reed's getting at in the book. He's saying you should have these huge goals and these huge aspirations. Absolutely. But don't get so rigid in your thinking that when these other opportunities come up in your life, you're so focused on that one thing that you don't even 
wait a second to consider the opportunities and the other things that could come into your life and maybe even be more beneficial or make you happier. And I really like that because I think that it is some great advice. And I think that it offers up this idea of, yes, have a course of action, but have an array of other things that you're open to and that you can consider it. And you know what? If something comes up, it's so easy just to say no. But if you're open to those things, I think your opportunity for success in the long run and your happiness in the long run is that much greater. It was definitely a chapter that was with a lot of great advice, especially if you were just about to graduate. It was quite clear to me, I guess, that it was almost like he was talking to himself whenever he was younger and all the mistakes that he felt that he did in terms of going to the business world, even though he's been quite successful. That was still how I read it. And he talked about this paradox of very often companies will ask you if you have experience, otherwise you can't get the job and you'll be like, well, I don't have any experience, but you need to give me experience before I have experience. Well, I guess that everyone who's been applying for a job, they probably know this paradox. So he addresses that and he said that the way to fix this, if you can afford it, of course, is to look at internships. And I think everyone has probably heard about that, but he had a very interesting thing to this about internships because he said that a lot of people, when they look at internships, they look at internships in terms of they're almost doing the company a favor one way or the other because, hey, they are working for free. And that was not how he said that one should look at it because the cost of paying someone a salary, that's only one type of cost for the company. That's not really how it is. So he was saying that whenever you are applying for a job, or even if it's an internship, think about how are you making the lives of the employees in the business better? And not so much about, is it cost? How much is it? That's not really what's relevant, because very often these people and the way that they're making decisions are, can they solve this problem for me? That's actually the main thing. And I think that was a really interesting discussion, because as he said, it's never a company that's hiring people. It's always people hiring other people. So I think that was one of my key takeaways from this chapter. So whenever I look at the way Reed behaved through his life with respect to this plan to adapt, I look at this first company that he started, this socialnet.com. And like we said at the beginning of the episode, this was seven to eight years before Facebook even happened. And so he clearly knew this was something that was going to be big. But you know what? He hung it up after three years, was it? Two or three years, he hung that up and he went to PayPal. And you can see he had this goal. He knew that this thing was going to be big. He saw it. But even though he was getting resistance and he was getting friction whenever he was trying to start this, and this is all relative to where he went next, (laughs) because it was obviously probably something that was pretty successful in its own right. but. He got offered another opportunity to go work at PayPal and have this huge role in something that was absolutely revolutionary on a global scale. And he seized it. He adapted to his environment that he was being offered. Then again, you know, PayPal's huge. They're selling it to eBay and everything else. And I mean, it's massive. And then he has another opportunity with LinkedIn. And you look at how the correlation between LinkedIn and this social net basically paved the way for him to basically stand up this LinkedIn website. And I see that he exercised that in his own life. And I think it's such a great demonstration for people that he's just not saying it. He's demonstrating it for people to see how he implemented this into his own life. He had this big, big, huge goal of creating these platforms, but he did it in a kind of jump from one ship to the next. And he kept going where the growth was. Take advantage of those opportunities and be very open-minded because it looks like that's what he did in his own life and it paid off immensely for him. Okay, so the fourth chapter is called It Takes a Network. And I wasn't surprised to hear this chapter in the book considering... (laughs) (laughs) From the LinkedIn founder? (laughs) (laughs) So as you might expect, he's a big proponent of using your network and networking in general. And I kind of liked how he talked about this in his book because he gets into the discussion of how he still communicates with Peter Thiel. He still talks to Elon Musk and he values these guys and he bounces ideas off of them and he keeps them close to him. 
and they might be working in completely different directions. But at the end of the day, he uses these guys as a sounding board and he's there for them. And the relationship is reciprocal. So when they have ideas, say Elon Musk has an idea, he'll come to Reed and he'll bounce these ideas off of Reed. And so it's not a profit-motivated mindset where, hey, do you want to sell me some of that equity? It's not anything like that. It's more, and I'm sure some of that takes place, but I think it's more of an intellectual mind share and a mastermind that he's talking about. And it was really neat to hear this billionaire talk about his mastermind and how much he values it. I really enjoyed hearing some of that. And I like the way that he talks about this. He uses this great metaphor that relationship building is like flossing. You are told that you have to, but it's really no fun. I like that. And I definitely like that because I'm an introvert. I think for a lot of extrovert people, it's a lot easier for them and a lot more natural for them to build networks. But if you're not, it's really hard because whenever you're hearing, oh, you need to build a network, you're thinking about, oh my God, I need to hand out 50 business cards and give everyone my elevator pitch. But that's not how he talks about it at all. And the weird thing is that I don't know too much about Reed Hoffman himself, but I kind of feel like he might be an introvert himself, and which is also why he's building all those relationships online and perhaps not in person. But to move on with some of the uh, key points from this chapter is that he's talking about the difference between a strong tie and a weak tie. And he's talking about that most people go to their strong ties first. So that would be someone like your spouse or your best friend. He's using the number eight to 10 people, it really in your inner circle. But then he brings up this very interesting statistic. Whenever it comes to finding a spouse or actually finding a job, 70% of them is through weak ties. And you might be thinking, wow, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why don't I get this from my strong ties instead? And he's saying, well, it's actually because the people closest to you, they are, have this problem looking at you because they are th- almost putting you in the box. That's how they know you. So they keep talking about you and to you like you are that predefined person. So they're not thinking about your development and they're not thinking about what else you can do because they have this really predefined notion about who you are. Another thing is that the people very close to you, they're very often exposed to the same thing as you are. And using weak ties, perhaps they have another mindset, but they're similarly exposed to other things and other opportunities compared to your strong ties. So I kind of felt that was a really interesting discussion and really interesting in terms of where is my next business opportunity perhaps. All right. So moving on to chapter five, we're going to talk about pursue breakout opportunities. And this is kind of a neat chapter because I think it's easy to talk about this, but harder to put into application. So he says that opportunities come suddenly. And while some of us are clueless about it, others seize them and make the most of it. This wasn't in the book, but I want to talk about a personal experience in my own life. So I know whenever I've had setbacks in my life, The approach that I've usually taken is I just feel bad for myself and I often focus on the setback and that's it. Like It's just like that's all I think about is how terrible this situation is. And I'd like to say that I'm introspective and I look inside as to why that might have happened and never blame anything on my exterior circumstances. (laughs) But that's obviously not true because a lot of the times I get into this blame mode and I think that it's because of my outside circumstances that cause whatever. And only recently, I can honestly say that within the last year or two, anytime I've had a setback, I'm starting to take, and I'm still not, I haven't mastered this by any shape of the imagination, but what I'm trying to start to do is anytime I have that setback, I immediately say, okay, so what is it that I'm supposed to take advantage of right now at this moment? Because I'm having this setback for a reason. I just have to figure out what the enormous opportunity is that's being served that's tethered to this setback. And I know that's so easy to say that, but really, really difficult to implement because it might not feel like there's any hope or any type of opportunity tied to this setback. And that's obviously not always the case, but I feel that it actually might be the case more often than people realize. So, What I'm trying to do is writing it down. So what I'll do is I'll grab a piece of paper and I'll write 
setback and write it out. And then I try to force myself to write three opportunities that now present themselves because of the setback. And sometimes I don't write anything down, (laughs) but I try, I try. And I think that that's the point that I want people to take away from this. So I'm going to throw it over to Stig because he's going to take it from here. I think Reed Hoffman had two very interesting observations in this chapter. The first one that was about human resources. Now his take was that human resources don't have any positive power, if you want to call it like that. And the reason he's saying that is that they have the power to say no, not always to say yes. So if you're using the traditional channels in terms of applying for a job, you'll meet a lot of people that would just say no, because that is where they have authority. So that's why if you really want a job and a job with great opportunities, you need to connect with someone that can say yes. And they're typically not in the human resource department. The other thing he talks about was both as an employee and as a business owner, it's important to make a decision. He's saying that today the way business works is that we have so many options. We have so many options and it's really hard for us as human beings to say no and really to go down one path. So he's talking about in terms of weighing risk, it might be perceived in the human mind as being risky, not to be open to a lot of different things, but it's actually really important for you, again, as an employee or as a business owner, to commit to that opportunity you have. And you need to do that and you need to follow through before you pivot into another thing. Those two observations I thought was really profound from Hoffman. So I like this part where he basically says, so I'm telling you to pursue breakout opportunities, but you ask, how do I do that? And what he says is, you have to start off by developing habits that increase your chances of finding more opportunities. So a person might say, well, what does that mean? And I think what it really comes down to, at least for me, is are you a person that does it yourself? Or are you the type of person that needs to be spoon-fed information and how to do things? And I think that's the critical habit that you need to develop. If you don't have that, go get it done yourself kind of attitude. I think that's what it really comes down to. The people that teach themselves anything in this world are the ones who create these habits of opportunities that fall onto their lap. And so I would challenge people to think about that really long and hard if you're trying to find things to have opportunities come into your life. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. 
That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let's go on to the next chapter. Chapter six, take intelligent risks. So Reed Hoffman's of the opinion that people have a tendency to overestimate risks and that they overaccount for them. And that a lot of the times, and, and this is another important one, is that just because you don't know what the risk is, doesn't mean that it's actually a risk. You need to dig into it more and maybe understand why or why not it's a risk. And I really liked all this. I think that this is good stuff. I think that when it comes to stock market investing, sometimes people fall into that latter category where they don't even know something's a risk and they don't take the time to account for it. And that's where they can potentially get themselves in a lot of trouble. But I think that when you're talking about things that are more job centric and, hey, I want to start my own business and or I want to go off and do this other thing, people are scared of things that they just don't know. And so they don't go any deeper than that. And I think what Reed Hoffman's saying here in his book is he's saying, go deeper than that. He's saying, if you don't know what it is and you're scared, do the research, work hard to understand things. So you now do know what the risk is and you might find out that the risk is nothing and that you should go for it. And that's what he's really getting at in this chapter. And I really like that because I think it it helps to chase the fear out of whatever it is that you want to go do and whatever you want to go accomplish. Yeah, I really love your point about that we are overestimating risk. And when it comes to risk, it makes a lot of sense. And the way that Hoffman explains this is that traditionally, if we made a wrong decision, and he was talking like thousands of years ago, you would just die. If you made a mistake back then, you might be you know, eaten by an animal. That's actually the, the metaphor he's using. And he's saying it makes a lot of sense to consider risk all the time. But he's saying that anywhere in life, there is a risk to any of your decision. He's taking an airline example. Whenever you're flying, well, there's a risk and there's a reward. And he's saying if you do crunch the numbers, if you do have that knowledge by digging deeper, as Preston said before, you usually see that the worst thing that can happen is usually not that bad. And for instance, when it comes to the job market, well, if you get the wrong job, you know what? You can quit. And a lot of people are saying, well, it doesn't look good for a resume. Hoffman doesn't agree with that at all. I mean, clearly it's not good if you have 10 different jobs in five years, but everything is definitely better than staying in a job that you don't like. He's also talking about, again, the title of the chapter is Take Intelligent Risk, and he's actually using Warren Buffett as an example here because he's saying that he is taking intelligent risk whenever he is investing where everyone is running from the hills in the stock market. That's an intelligent risk. That doesn't mean that he can't be wrong, but it's an intelligent risk because he's weighing the risk and the reward. And that's basically the gist of this chapter. We need to rethink what risk is, and if we do crunch the numbers, things are usually not that risky. 
Okay, so the last chapter, chapter seven, and the title of this chapter is Who You Know Is What You Know. One of the things that he starts off on this one is he says, Bill Gates once said that the best way to stand out in a crowd is to equip yourself with information. The way we use the information can be the deciding factor between success and failure. And I really like that quote because we're taught in schools to memorize things and take tests. And we see this all the time. People that come out of college, they have straight A's because they memorized everything that they needed to know for the test. But when it gets into the real application, they might be 100% clueless how to take that information and apply it to a dynamic and changing world around you. And this is something that Hoffman lays out in his book. And I think that it comes down to this simple analogy. You can read as many books as you want. You can read every Michael Phelps book that's ever written about swimming. But until you actually get in the water and try to do it yourself, you're going to have no clue how to swim until you actually start to learn and try to apply the things that you read or that you learned about in theory. I think that when you combine those two things, that jumping in the pool and actually attempting the stuff that you're studying, and you combine it with the theory, that's when you get the amazing results. The other thing that he's talking about in this chapter really gets at what the title of it is, which is who you know is what you know. And what he's really getting at is you are surrounded by people. So most people have a LinkedIn account. If you go into your LinkedIn account, I want people just to imagine this. If you look at all those connections and you could imagine the amount of information and more importantly, the experience of all those people, if you could just harness all of that into a super brain, into your own mind, just think of what you would be capable of doing. And I think what he's getting at in this chapter is you need to think as if that exists for you. The only thing that's the difficult part is knowing who knows what and how to access them so that they can help you achieve what you want. And you can also have a win-win relationship where you can help them in return in order to keep that connection alive and operating. That's what he's really getting at here. And so you need to think about how profound that is and how you can utilize that to accomplish what it is that you're really after in life. One of the great ways he's explaining the power of network, especially now in the age of Google, where you're told you can Google everything and get answers to everything. Well, he's saying that, well, Google will come off short compared to a friend that can tell you about a job opportunity that is not open. And that is how he kicks off this chapter. And he's saying, so how do you utilize your network in terms of gaining that knowledge? And he's talking about how you need to learn how to converse. Is actually skill in itself to obtain information from other people. Not in the sense that you're exploiting people, definitely not in the sense that you're interrogating people, but actually having a pleasant conversation with another human being where you can learn from each other. And he's talking about the importance of priming the respondent. So one of the things that he's saying is that you need to tell him which kind of answer you might be looking for. If I would be calling up Preston and he wouldn't know it was me and I would say, how should I invest? That would be a pretty open question and a really hard question for Preston to respond. But the more concise I am without clearly giving Preston a yes or no question, because that would probably be an even worse way of having a discussion, the better it is. So he's basically saying you need to think about what you're asking and how you can use why. Again, the importance of why that we talked about most of the times on the podcast. How can you utilize why questions and how can you prime that respondent in terms of the kind of answer you would like? And he's also saying that it's natural for people to be afraid to ask too much into something. So for instance, you might be talking about a job at Microsoft. That was one of his examples. And then the other person might say, yeah, but working at Microsoft right now, it's quite risky. Now here's a problem because if you're thinking... So this is Stick's definition of risk. So that means X, Y, C. He's saying, naturally, you would say, hmm, so what do you mean about risky working at Microsoft? So again, it's the whole thing about digging deeper and being sure what the other person is saying. 
All right, guys. So that completes our review of the book, The Startup of You by Reed Hoffman. We really liked this. We thought it was very good. I would recommend that a person that is an introvert should read this book. It'd be a good area for them to expand and to think about. If you're an extrovert already and you're pretty good at networking and all that stuff, probably a pass. But for me, I think that this would be a great book for an introvert to read. All right, guys. So if you want to get our free executive summary of this book, we type up an executive summary for every single book that we read. It's about five pages long. Go to our website. And if you go under the subscribe link, there'll be a spot where you can sign up for our email list. We don't send out any spam. This email list is just for you. And we want to help add value for you that you can read through these books at a much faster pace to determine whether you want to actually buy the book or not. So go onto our website and sign up for that email list so you can get all of our executive summaries for free. At this point in the show, we're going to go ahead and play a question from our audience. Our question this week comes from Soham, and here it goes. Hey, Preston Stig. This is Soham from the San Francisco Bay Area. Big fan of the show. Hope you guys come out here soon. What are some of the most significant biases that beginning investors have? And what are some ways to address those biases to make sure that they don't affect returns? Besides, obviously, listening to your excellent show. Thank you. Okay. So I absolutely love this question because I think this one is really, really important for people to understand where they might be making a mistake. For new investors, I think one of the biggest bias that you can really shape or have is having a strong win up front and not really knowing why it actually materialized. So it's really common for a person to just lack basic stock investing knowledge. And I talk to people all the time about this stuff. And you'd be blown away at how many people, whenever I say, okay, so do you know what the EPS, the earnings per share is on the company? And they just look at me like I just started talking a different language. Or I might say, well, what's the dividend yield or any any one of these really, really basic, what's the PE ratio? You know, and they just they have no idea what you're talking about. But that same person who I'm having this conversation with will say, yeah, I I made like 20% on this thing in the last six months. And that's a person who's about to have a major, major upset in their investing approach. And so I really think that that's important for people to think about. If you are just starting out and you have had some good picks, first of all, compare them to what the S&P 500 has done. So I see this one a lot. A person will say, oh yeah, I did. I picked company XYZ and it went up 20% in the last six months, but they never even think about how the S&P 500 performed during that same six months. And if the S&P 500 went up 20%, or maybe even the S&P 500 went up 25%, (laughs) that person just lost. And they need to understand why they lost, and they need to think in relative terms to the broader context of the market or other opportunities that were out there. And I think when you're doing that and you're really you know, assessing your performance across a basket of other opportunities, that's when you can really say that you're making good, sound decisions that are outperforming the market as a whole. So I have two biases I would like to address. The first one is actually overconfidence too. So I'll just do that very briefly. I'd say definitely not knowing what you don't know, that's a big problem. And that's usually just how it goes whenever you start investing or basically anything else that you haven't done before. It might be because as Preston suggests that you might be very successful with the first pick, so you become overconfident. But in general, if you don't know anything about it, it's so easy to forget the risk that associated with it because you haven't had experience with risk and you don't know how to evaluate risk in investing. So Definitely overconfidence, that's one thing. And it really, the last point really leads me to the next big bias. And I think that's a lack of diversification. You might have your eyes on a specific pick, say Coca Cola. And because you believe in this stock, regardless of the valuation, perhaps, perhaps that was why you decided to enter the stock market in the first place. All the information that you look for in terms of why you should invest in Coca Cola, if you do that, that even makes you more confident or actually what we call confirmation bias. So basically, like all the information out there, you, you're kind of searching unconsciously after something that would say, yes, Coca-Cola is a great company. Coca-Cola is a great company, and there's a lot of information out there that would back that up. 
Now, there is not that information that would probably tell you that it's a good company giving the current valuation, but that might also be something that you won't consider to begin with. So you might go out and invest, say, 30% of your portfolio in the stock. And for someone who's not familiar with sizing their portfolio, it might seem like, why can't I invest 30% in a stock? The interesting thing is that when you're new in investing, you usually don't have that many stocks on your radar because it takes a lot of time to acquire the necessary knowledge to invest a lot of stocks. And again, say Coca-Cola might be the reason why you go into stocks in the first place. So you would go ahead and say, I really believe in this company. Remember, for all the confirmation bias too. So I might go ahead and invest 30% of my portfolio in that stock. Now, 30% might make a lot of sense if you're Warren Buffett, but it definitely doesn't make any sense for other investors, especially if they're new investors. So if I need to come up with two things, definitely overconfidence and the lack of diversification if you're a new investor. So, so harm, really, really great question. We really appreciate that. And we also really like to reward you for your questions. So we're giving you two courses from TIP Academy. It's the chapter-by-chapter video summary of The Intelligent Investor and also a new course, How to Invest in ETFs. But guys, this was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We'll see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.